Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. Good morning, church fam. So where are, uh, where are my readers in the room? How many of y'all actually like to read? Y'all know by now I love to read. And uh, one of the things that I love to do is I love to read the back of the book first, just to see what it's about. Or in the very front of the book, there's this thing called a foreword, which will tell you a little bit of what the book is about. Are any of y'all those people? You need to read the back first or read the foreword first to see if you're actually going to read the book. Okay, moviegoers. How many of y'all watch the trailer first before you go to the movie? Yeah, me too. I like to know what it's about and determine whether or not I'm actually going to go see it. Well, Revelation chapter 14 is another one of those preview chapters or what I would call the trailer to what is to come. You'll see what I mean in just a few weeks. Um, We're going to be taking a look today at what's what's called the Battle of Armageddon. You all have heard of that, right? And there's been movies about it and it's been sensationalized. And well, Revelation chapter 14 is going to give us a little preview of actually the eight phases of the Battle of Armageddon that starts in Revelation 16 and goes all the way through Revelation chapter 19. So today is our preview. Lots to be learned from it. There's actually a couple of other folks that are going to give us previews before we actually get to Revelation 14. One is this prophet. His name is Joel. Maybe you've heard of him. Another prophet by the name of Isaiah And then straight from the lips of Jesus, we're going to get a little preview of the Battle of Armageddon. So here we go, beginning with Joel, in the third chapter, uh, verses 12 through 13, he writes, Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. And then there's the prophet Isaiah in chapter 63, verses 1 through 6. He says, Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Fast forward about 700 years, and now Jesus is on the scene, and he's speaking in Matthew 13, 36 to 43. It says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is a son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. 
The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So Joel and Isaiah and Jesus, they all spoke of a time that is coming that sounds brutal. In fact, we're about to read Revelation 14, 14 through 20, where we're going to take a look at two harvests, one that we call the grain harvest, one that we call the grape harvest. That one looks forward to the battle of Armageddon. And again, when we finish this passage, you might think this just seems like a gloomy passage. This just seems like a brutal war. But I want to remind us that over the course of months, we've been going through the book of Revelation And if you'll remember, God has warned time and time again that his judgment is coming. He has done everything he he could to spare human beings from having to be cast into the lake of fire. How did he do it? Well, he sent prophets in the Old Testament. He sent apostles in the New Testament. He gave us 66 books of the Bible. He himself came as the person of Jesus Christ. When you get to the end times, which we're not there yet, so I kind of call this future history. It's history in the sense that God has already seen it happen, but it's future for us. In the future, what does he do? Well, he sends 144,000 Jewish evangelists. He sends two witnesses that may very well be Moses and Elijah who perform all these miracles and they continue to preach the gospel. Then he even sends angels who fly directly overhead and angels now and he himself even speaks. Time and time again, God says, I want you to be with me where I'm at. My goodness to you has been overflowing. My grace to you has been overflowing. But many have rejected it. A large majority have rejected the goodness of God. They've rejected his free gift of salvation by Jesus on the cross. And therefore, they're going to get exactly what they've been asking for. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. So if you would, just as our custom around here, as we get ready to read God's word, Revelation 14, 14 through 20, I didn't have to say it. That's amazing. Thank you for standing as we honor the king. And if you're a little bit newer around here and you're wondering, why do you stand when you read your main passage? We really just do it in honor of the king. When a king would come into town, the people would all stand at attention and give him honor um, and glory. So if we stand for a bride when she walks down the aisle at a wedding, um, all the much more we should be standing for the Lord Jesus uh, in honor of him. Amen? Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. And blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. You can have a seat. Thanks, King. 
So we have broken Revelation chapter 14 down into really three parts. And so two weeks ago, we saw that God will always reward his faithful followers. And that's great news, especially with the passage that we're in today, because last week we took a look at how the death of the sinner is tragic, but yet the death of the saint is triumphant. And we're going to find out what makes the death of the sinner just so tragic today, even before their death actually happens, those that have rejected him, what makes their life tragic? What we just read and what I'm praying we walk away with this morning is that we know that the time of Christ's reaping is going to be severe and it's going to be sudden. So what do we do about it? Share the gift of Jesus. Share the pardon that he offers often and do it clearly. Now, I know some of y'all have heard me repeat certain things over and over again. It's not because I'm forgetting. Well, I might be, but I'm not forgetting when I say, hey, let's be clear on how we share the gospel. We're living in a day and age where people need to hear the gospel from beginning to end. And what I mean by that is that they come to a firm grasp and a firm understanding that there is a God who made them with a purpose. We messed that up. He fixed it through Jesus, and now we can be in heaven with him because of Jesus and Jesus alone. Remember our five questions. By the way, you've got tests today. So are you all awake and ready to go? School has started already in Albuquerque, so be ready for tests. Hopefully you all remember, or at least this will come to, to mind, the five questions that we ask whenever we present the gospel. Where did I come from? Why am I here? What's gone wrong? How can it be fixed? And where am I going? The simple presentation of the gospel, where have I come from? Genesis 1 and 2, there is a God who made us that is outside of time, space, and matter. He loved us so much that he formed and he fashioned us from the ground. He gave us purpose. What was our purpose? To walk with him, to be in love relationship with him and those that he made to live with us. But, number three, what's gone wrong? Well, we have. We have sinned grievously against the Lord and it has brought death and destruction and decay into our world. It has messed up our bodies. It has messed up our minds. It has messed up the world that we live in. But praise God for the answer to question number four. How can it be fixed? Well, it's not through philosophy. It's not through education. It's not through ideology. It's not through environmentalism. It's not through politics. It's through one person. His name's Jesus. He is going to restore all things. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth where we'll be back to perfection. And then the fifth question, where am I going? And that all depends on what you do with number four. What did you do with Jesus? There's the simple message of the gospel that will probably provoke a lot of questions, but praise God when it does, because God has put us on this planet to go out and share the gospel and hopefully help people answer some of those questions. Will you have the answers to all of them? I don't. Uh, I'm assuming most of us or all of us sitting in this room don't have all the answers, but we know somebody who does. So let's introduce them to him. So this week, we're going to take a look at Christ's reaping how severe and how sudden it's going to be, and then that offer or that pardon of salvation uh, that he gives us. We're going to look at the grain harvest, and we're going to look at the grape harvest, and when we do it, we're going to look at three things in both harvests. One, who is the reaper? Two, what's being reaped? And then three, what's going to happen at the reaping? So do you get that? Two events, grain harvest, grape harvest, who's the reaper, what's being reaped, and what's going to happen at the reaping? Let's start in verse 14. So Revelation 14, 14, then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Who's the reaper of the grain harvest? It's Jesus. The reaper of the grain harvest 
is Jesus himself. This is Jesus coming to set up his kingdom as had been prophesied in the book of Daniel. So almost, well, about 650 years before it happened, Daniel told us what was going to happen. The white cloud really speaks of Jesus' majesty and glory. If you'll remember reading in the book of Daniel, it says one like a son of man will come riding on the clouds in power and in glory. That's Jesus. And it seems, it just seems like maybe we've lost a little bit of our reverence for Jesus. Because when Daniel wrote about Jesus coming on the clouds and he saw his majesty and he saw his glory, he couldn't help but fall on his face. You all might remember when Isaiah got called as a prophet and God spoke to him in a vision. What did he do? He fell on his face and went, woe is me, I'm dead. I'm not going to live through this. But God allowed him to live through it. So maybe we've lost just a little bit of reverence for Jesus. One of quite possibly the top five books that I've ever read is called Gospel Deeps. It's by a guy named Jared Wilson. This entire book is just chapter after chapter about the depths and the glory and the majesty of the gospel and Jesus himself. I want to show you why I have enjoyed this so much from just a couple of paragraphs from his book. Towards the end, he's got a chapter called The Crosswise Excellencies of Christ. He starts with Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He said, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Listen to these two paragraphs as he expounds on that. He said, as we've seen, the glory of God is the weightiness of his being, the sum of his attributes and character. This passage tells us that Jesus is the radiance of that weight and sum, which means that Jesus is the reflection, emanation, and display of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the radiance of God's eternal immensity. He is the showcase of the infinite awesomeness of God. That's the Jesus that we serve. Now listen to what he goes on to say. There is a solar flare in Hebrews 1.3, or of Hebrews 1.3, in Revelation 21.23, where it says that the glory of God will illuminate the new heaven and earth with the lamb as the lamp. Jesus will be the sun of the world to come. And like the sun, if Jesus is not at the center of our solar system, nothing works. No life results, no balance is found. If the sun is not at the center of our system, everything is chaos, disorder, and death. Did you hear that? Does that not speak volumes to the mess that our world is in right now? Because Jesus is not at the center of our system. In fact, I would say that if I had to, to use one word to describe the world that we live in right now, the one word that I would use is narcissistic. If you don't know what the word narcissism or narcissist or narcissism means, I'm going to just give you the simplest definition that I know of. Self-worship. That's narcissism. But what happens when I put myself on the throne? Chaos reigns, disorder reigns, death reigns. Well, in Revelation chapter 14, what we just read, the king will not put up with somebody else trying to usurp his throne and usurp his authority forever. 
He won't continue to put up with it. Now, again, what we just read might sound brutal. Well, Jesus just sounds like a tyrant. But again, you've got to remember that we have been given warnings ever since sin first entered into the world. And we have been given a covering or an atonement through the the cross work of Jesus Christ for century upon century. And yet people have chosen to reject the king. Well, I would really hope that Revelation chapter 14 actually inspires you, gets you excited about who your king is. Because I'll tell you what, football season is starting. And regardless of who you root for, the chances are pretty good that your team is probably not going to win the Super Bowl. Just saying, most likely. Or if you're like myself and a bunch of the other pastors in the room, we all play fantasy football. Every year, I start off good. And then if your team is anything like mine, like last year or the year before, like half my team gets arrested and the other half gets injured. And then I end up losing and there goes another fantasy football season. Well, here's the good news about Scripture. Even though it might look like at times we're losing, I mean, the prophets got brutally killed. The apostles got brutally killed. Jesus comes. He gets brutally killed. Well, guess what? Although Friday was dark and gloomy, Sunday came. And then Jesus rose from the dead. And then after he rose from the dead, the angels are speaking to the disciples going, hey, gang, don't worry. Just as you saw him ascend, he will also descend. He is coming again. He is going to set up his kingdom, an actual, literal kingdom. Now, again, if my eschatology is correct, if my, if my chronology of end times is right, you and I are going to get raptured out of here. We're going to spend seven years in heaven getting our rewards, being with Jesus, um, being blessed. And then at the end of that seven years, when the tribulation on earth is over, we're coming with him. And then we aren't going to do anything. We're going to watch him exercise his judgment, some of the judgments that we're reading about in chapter 14, and then also in 16 through 19. Now, some of you all may be thinking, oh, wait a minute, I'm part of the army, I've got to fight with him. He actually doesn't need our help. Go figure. There have been so many times in my life where I've told Jesus, well, you know, I think I'm going to help you out on this one, to which I get reminded, hey, Dave, you weren't there when I made the world, you weren't there when I made you, and I don't need your help now. Okay, be honest, how many of y'all have ever tried to help God out a little? Like, okay, this is a pretty tight predicament here, Lord, so I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to have to work my magic. To which God reminds me, you have none. Every power that is available in the universe is found only in Christ alone. We don't have any within ourselves. I struggle with hearing messages from pulpits coming forth saying that we actually have to unleash God or let him out of his cage so he can do his work. Nobody cages God. God is not dependent upon my actions to do anything. God is holy and completely sovereign. God God is holy and completely in control. He doesn't need my help. Let me just show you a couple places that prove that. He's described as having a golden crown on his head. That word for crown is the word Stephanos that's used in the Greek. It pictures Jesus as a conquering king. The king that would win a battle would wear the Stephanos crown, and then he would ride through town with it. The Olympic athlete that won the Olympic Games would wear a Stephanos crown, telling the crowd that this was the victor, that he had won, that he is receiving the spoils. Jesus wins, and he needs no help. It also says that he has this sharp sickle, in his hand. Nobody gave it to him. It's his. 
The reaper of a grain harvest, he would hold a long curved, it would be like a razor uh, sharp blade. It would be attached to a long wooden broomstick like handle and he would swing it back and forth, cutting down the grain to the ground. This is a picture really of Jesus mowing down his enemies. And notice we're not helping him out. By the time we get to this passage, gone are the days of Jesus, meek and mild. Gone are the days of Jesus as a lamb being led to the slaughter. And now are the days of Jesus as the lion of Judah, roaring and ruling triumphantly. Go to verse 15. It says, And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. The reaper is Jesus. The ripeness of the grain harvest are dried up unbelievers. They are dried up unbelievers. That Greek word exreno is the word for fully ripe here. And it literally means dried up or withered. They are now completely useless. And so the Lord will come and will begin to mow down the wicked people of the world. They've rejected Christ over and over again. And finally what Jesus said in Matthew 13, 40 is coming to fruition. They are now to be gathered and burned with fire. Go on to verse 16. It says, So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Simply put, the reaping of this grain harvest is swift, and it's severe. The description of the sharpness of this sickle really describes the severe. Gang, so do I. I believe that God is loving. I believe that God is gracious. I believe that God is merciful. But those are only a few attributes of the God that we serve. Because God is also a God of justice. And he cannot leave sin unpunished. Or he is no longer just. And that means that he is no longer God. But the question is, is this fair? Are people really getting what they deserve? Well, let's let the Apostle Paul speak to that. He writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, and I'm going to read this slow because this is a verse that we've heard so many times that I think we breeze right over it, so I want you to hear this. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We could actually spend an entire morning breaking down one verse. I'm not going to spend the entire morning. I'm going to spend about 60 seconds, but let me break this down. For the wages, what's a wage? That which you have earned. Of sin, what is sin? Well, in the Greek, it's an archery term meaning to fall short, which means that we have missed the mark. And what's the wage of that sin? Death, which means separation. But the free gift, he uses those two words together for emphasis. It is completely free. You can't buy it. And it's a gift it's not to be bought, is of God. And what is that gift? It is eternal life. In who? Christ Jesus. Notice he gives no other options. And then he finishes with Christ Jesus, our Lord. In the Greek, it's the word kurios. It means master. Our hope is only found in following the right master. Something that we have talked about before in this place is we're all slaves to something. Did you know that? Every single one of us. 
question is, what have you chained yourself to? My master is going to provide for my every needs. And he's already paid the full weight of the penalty of my sin. Any other master outside of Jesus leads to death and destruction. And we're all mastered by something. Being a guy, especially, I hear from guys, I'm the master of my own destiny. Beating the chest, right? Nobody tells me what to do. I run my world, I run my life. Fascinating, to which I go back to the same question. Where were you when God created the heavens and the earth? You remember God speaking that to Job when he finally started to complain a little bit? Well, Job, wait a minute. Where were you when I made everything? To which he also says to the kings of the nations, you think you are big and bad and in control. Where were you when I made all things? Where were you when I was forming and fashioning in your mama's womb? And do you realize that you only have a little bit of power for a short period of time because I have allowed you to? With that framework in mind, now we can better understand why the grain harvest and the grape harvest that we're about to read about are actually deserved. Now, before we get into verse 17, because this is the beginning of that battle of Armageddon, or it's the preview of the battle of Armageddon that we're about to read about. We're going to look at eight phases of it from chapter 16 through 19. We're going to be doing that for about two weeks together. So I just want to give you a brief introduction to the battle of Armageddon. First of all, what does Armageddon literally mean? Literally, it just means Mount of Megiddo. It refers to a location that is about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. So if you had a Bible map or atlas and you saw Jerusalem, you go about 60 miles almost directly north and you run into this place called Megiddo, which is where this series or this um, campaign of battles is going to take place. Okay, so you've got a little bit of a feel for the battle of Armageddon. Again, don't worry, we're going to unpack that a whole bunch over the course of about seven or eight weeks. But in verse 17, this preview of the battle of Armageddon, then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. So who's the reaper of the grape harvest? It's actually a powerful angel. This time, instead of it being Jesus, it's a powerful angel. And that's not surprising. Jesus himself spoke of using angels to procure his judgment. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 38 through 42, these are the words of Jesus, the field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5-8, through 8, the Apostle Paul writes that this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inf- inflicting vengeance, on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what about the ripeness of the grapes? Well, in Revelation 14, 18, it says, another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. The ripeness of this grape harvest 
Those are wicked people that are bursting with wickedness. That Greek word for ripe literally means to flourish or to come to full maturity. So in other words, what Jesus is telling us through John is that these wicked, these unbelieving people, they're flourishing or they are bursting with the juice of wickedness. They are doing everything they can to be as wicked as possible and don't really care and don't think that any repercussions are coming. Gang, Scripture speaks to living wisely because of the days of evil or being that we are in evil days. I don't know if you've noticed at all, we're in some evil days. People do not want anything to do with Jesus. In fact, we are even past the point of people tolerating each other, and now it has become a thing of hate if you are a follower of Jesus. How dare you say that you exclusively worship one person? How dare you say that that one person that wrote those 66 books of the Bible decide for me what is right and what is wrong? I myself am autonomous and I will decide what is right and I will decide what is wrong. Those are the words of the world that we live in today. To which again I would ask the question, how's that working for you? To the world that we live in, how is that working for you? To which I would also continue to remind people, God will only put up with that for so long. Remember, God's got a throne. What does he not have? A love seat. He never asked me to join him. He asked me to get down on my knees at the foot of his throne where I rightly belong. And as much as we may think, I'm not bowing down to anybody, recognize this, when you bow down to Jesus, the greatest rewards that could ever be given out are going to be doled out when you get up to heaven. And what a glorious day that's going to be. We'll get to look more at that together as the weeks go by um, as well. Last two verses in Revelation 14. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the great harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. The reaping of the grain harvest is ultimately going to be a slaughter. He uses this picture of a winepress and I decided to do a little digging into wine presses of the day, and what they were was two stone basins or two stone troughs that would have been connected by a pipeline. And so you would have had the upper basin or the upper trough where people would get in and they would stomp all over the grapes. And there would be a little hole in the bottom like your bathtub drain. And it would go down the pipe and it would go to that bottom trough and that's where the juice would be collected. And he uses that as a description of what is going to happen to Jesus' enemies. And how bad is it going to be? It says the blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle, which is approximately four to four and a half feet, and for 1,600 stadia. One stadia is 607 feet. So I did the math, and if you take 607 and you multiply that by the 1,600 stadia, it comes out to 184 miles. You've got about 184 miles worth of four-foot-high blood flowing. And people have asked me, well, do you think that's literal? I do. I think that that's exactly what's going to happen. That's how many people are going to set themselves up against Jesus. And he's not going to put up with it. That brings new meaning to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. He says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Which also tells me that it would be wise for myself and all of us to heed Psalm chapter 2, 
verse 12, which says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Did you hear that? Kiss the son. What does that mean? Well, in ancient days, if you wanted to honor somebody, you'd kiss them on both sides of their cheek or you'd even kiss their feet. And here the psalmist tells us, honor Jesus. And then you won't perish in the way because his wrath will be kindled. This is how good our God is. Regardless if you're greedy or you're a swindler or you've been a fornicator or you've been an adulterer or you've been a murderer, Jesus paid for every single one of those. And if we're willing to turn to him and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. If we're willing to confess our sin, he will forgive us and cleanse us from all of our sin. He will bestow righteousness upon us that we don't deserve. Now I want to conclude with this. When I was sitting in my office going through this message, I was thinking, man, if I was sitting here with Jesus, here's what he might ask me after finishing Revelation chapter 14. Hey, child of mine, are you living in light of eternity? Are you living for the one thing that matters most? If so, keep up the good work. If not, repent and start living for what matters most, me, living for Jesus. Then I pictured him speaking to the unbeliever. Hey, enemy of mine, why are you living for things that only bring death? Why are you playing for a team that can't win? Repent and follow me now. Stop living for things that lead to destruction and death. Live for me and receive eternal life. That's the Jesus we serve. He has provided the way of salvation through his death on the cross and then he rose again. I want to close this morning with just a question. Which of the three are you? Are you that enemy of Jesus who refuses to trust him as Savior and needs to accept the free gift of salvation today? And then you don't have to worry about this judgment that we just read about? Are you that child of his that's really just living like the rest of the world and bringing disgrace to his name, maybe needing to rededicate your life, your allegiance to Christ? Or are you that child that's living holy and completely for Jesus and you just need to keep fighting the good fight? Continue to be encouraged. Whichever of those three that you are, the truth is the same for all of us. There's nothing in all of the universe that's more worthy than Jesus. Amen? I'm going to pray for us, and then before you run out, I want to share one more thing with you about the worthiness of Jesus, just to encourage your heart on the way out the door. So let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you again for our time together with you. Lord, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that because we know you, these judgments that we read about are nothing that we have to fear, but Lord, should cause a sense of urgency in our lives to share the good news of who you are with people that have yet to trust you. Lord Jesus, we just praise you as King of kings, as Lord of lords. As we sang this morning, there is nothing that is more worthy than you. So may we build our lives upon you. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Okay, let me encourage you with this before I send you out the door. Towards the very end of Jared Wilson's book, he says, If Christ controls the universe, it changes everything. Or it should There is so much now to rethink and reform. If Christ upholds the universe, we must jettison the dualistic notion that Satan and God are fighting and the outcome is unsure. I have read and heard some ideas that leave the impression that these fighting forces are relying on our power to prevail. Can you imagine 
God needing our prayers to uphold the universe? If Christ upholds the universe by the power of his word, we should stop worrying about the end of the world. Is there global warming? Maybe yes, maybe no. But either way, the end of the world will only come when Jesus says so. If he upholds the universe by the power of his word, we need to repent of the arrogance of thinking that this world is what we make of it or think into it, of the prideful beliefs that drive name it and claim it and prosperity gospel messages, word of faith movements, and other man-centered heretical horse pucky. Don't you like the way he writes? He was almost driven to cuss. After making purification for sins, the author of Hebrews writes, how excellent is Christ? Well, perfection is required to make purification for sins. But even the most perfect lambs did not eradicate sin once for all. And then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why is he seated? Because the work is done. The payment has been paid in full. The feat has been accomplished in total. Do you recognize that everything that has ever been needed in order to secure your spot in heaven and salvation has been done, has been paid for by Jesus in total? If that doesn't give us something to reason, a reason to celebrate, something to celebrate, I don't know what else does. Amen? Okay, gang, go give Albuquerque Jesus. Have a good week. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us.